Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. IDOC Watch shared that Shaka Shakur, a well-known prison militant, has been transferred from the Indiana State Prison System to the Virginia Prison System, potentially setting a disturbing precedent for other outspoken prisoners. He's now being denied adequate medical care in Virginia. You can find out more information on how to call in at facebook.com forward slash IDOC watch. A spokesperson for the country's largest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, has announced that the bank will no longer finance the private prison industry, which includes detention centers as well as prisons. Such facilities have become targets of protests over the Trump administration's immigration policies. It's estimated that about two-thirds of people incarcerated by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement are in private detention centers. Activists stepped up their protest against the financing of private prisons and detention centers after the Trump administration began separating undocumented children from their parents. On this past Valentine's Day, a protest group congregated outside J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon's Manhattan apartment with a mariachi band and signs that demanded that Dimon, quote, break up with prisons, unquote. The two largest private prison companies, CoreCivic and GEO Group, deny that its immigration detention centers house children not under the supervision of a parent. This week, we air the first of two episodes tracking the rise of police racism and militarization in Los Angeles, from the Watts Uprising of 1965 to the 1992 LA riots after Rodney King's beating. Max Felker Cantor, author of the book Policing Los Angeles, walks us through the changes in policing, as well as the ways in which anti-police activism grew during this time, starting with events like Watts and the siege of the Black Panther Party headquarters by LA police, to the many police murders of black residents, such as the death of Eula Love in 1979. Felker Cantor traces how these events led to both modern policing and anti-police movements. As one LA resident noted at the time, quote, the police's role is to uphold community standards, and in this community, that includes segregation." Unquote. So in my talk today, you know, provisionally titled here, well, Policing Los Angeles, Race and Resistance from Watts to Rodney King, um, I'm going to shed some light on the ways that, you know, and it's the book, the ways police power operated and expanded in Los Angeles over the course of roughly three decades. Uh, I'm also going to highlight the ways, though, that activists and city residents, mostly people of color, pushed back against the police power, resisted discriminatory, if not racist, police policies, and exposed a profound lack of police accountability in the city. Um, in doing so, anti-police abuse activists helped bring changes to the police department and pointed the way towards reforms. But also more importantly, I'm going to argue, is they provided a more expansive vision of freedom from police and state violence. And the stories of anti-police brutality activists and movements, as well as the interaction with the LAPD, are part of a larger story that I tell in the book about the LAPD 
city politics and anti-police abuse activism, roughly between the Watts uh, uprisings of 1965 and the Los Angeles Rebellion of 1992. And that's really the generative moment, two moments of the book. These examples of police violence and anti-police protests in Los Angeles that occurred roughly 27 years apart. These two events might raise a number of questions, and they raised a number of questions for me as I did this work. And they also will be generative of the kind of three main points that I'm going to kind of focus on today. But they raise these questions of how and why do these events seem so similar, 27 years apart? How had the LAPD continued to operate with such force and impunity in the face of what I argue is an outpouring of anti-police protest over the course of three decades? How did it occur, if any of you know anything about it in Los Angeles? In Los Angeles, um, under the administration of a liberal African-American mayor, Tom Bradley. How did such policing impact communities of color? And what does this story tell us about race policing resistance in modern America more generally? Um, and this is, of course, a story that we could bring all the way up to our present. The three points that I'm going to kind of focus on that I think we can draw out of these two moments is that in the decades after Watts, the LAPD resisted all but the most limited demands for reform made by activists and residents. Instead, with the support of a wide variety of political interests and of various other interest groups, the department focused on expanding its authority and power. The beating of Rodney King, or, or the reaction to it, excuse me, and the reaction to it in the 92 rebellion, if anything, revealed how the police had become more powerful, more abusive, <laughs> more militarized and more present in a number of areas of social life than they, that where they had not been before in the 1960s. Um, in short, the police power had intensified. That leads into this kind of second point that I'm going to kind of suggest is that this is a story of the police power. And what I mean by that is rest on kind of a theory of the state's or the government's role in having the authority to ensure, protect the social welfare um, of society. This is a broad-based power that in my case, I argue, was um, based on a fundamental belief that the police were central to protecting a hierarchically defined social order um, based pre predominantly on racial inequality. And so the police become the kind of definers of that racially hier hierarchical social order. The police thereby constituted their own power through the crises they helped manufacture over time, um, and such as the response to urban uprising, uh, moral panics about drugs and gangs, and challenges to their legitimacy brought by activists. And then the final point here is that black and Latino activists made the police a central component of the struggle for racial justice after the 1960s. And by promoting alternatives to punitive policies, anti-police struggles not only challenged the fundamental nature of police power, but also exposed how policing was a central arm of the state that operated to exclude people of color from full membership in American society. For those of you who don't know much about Los Angeles, of course, it's this sprawling city on the Pacific of 470 square miles. It's a city with a recent history. It grows from roughly 1.3 million in 1930 to nearly 3 million people by 1970. The demographics of the city undergo a profound transformation. And this is the county, so I'm gonna, these numbers are a little bit different for the city itself. The demographic change, the city goes from a predominantly white city to one multiracial, predominantly African, uh, rising African-American population, then predominantly Latinx by the end of the 20th century. Um, and in particular, what matters here is that for much of its history, Los Angeles was predominantly a white city. 
Um, from its inception, LA power brokers targeted African American and Mexican and Mexican Americans for disciplinary modes of containment and exclusion. And the demographic changes after World War II led to a vibrant African American community that disrupted this vision of a white city. Um, just as an example, between 1940 and 1970, the African American population in the county, for example, goes rises from 63,000 to over 700,000 in the course of two and a half, three decades. Um, and it's a city built on residential segregation. And so the blue areas here are African-American uh, residential areas, predominantly South Central, and to the, the, the red are Latino. And this is in 1960, and then again in 1970, so these kind of areas of contained residential segregation. Um, and this ethnic and racial diversity threatened the city city's booster's vision uh, as the city as one of, for white homeowners. And political officials and white residents to maintain this segregated city often turn to the police as the enforcers of a segregated racial order. African-American and Mexican-American migrants reshaped the, the, the geography and they confronted this police force that's intent on maintaining the city's reputation as the nation's, quote, white spot. Um, and that comes from Chief William Parker, um, the LAPD chief at the time we'll talk about in a minute. And as one African-American resident, for example, comments in 1962, quote, police officers enforce the code of the community, and here it includes segregation. And so under this leadership, and this is William Parker here, He's central to shaping how the LAPD operated in the entire post-war period, you could argue, until today. Under Parker, the LAPD operated with a profound lack of accountability, was insulated from political oversight, um, and acted largely as a, quote, thin blue line between what he would call order and chaos. He promoted an idea of a professional police force that was divorced from politics, one that was politically insulated, he presided over a police department that had civil service protection, so the chief of police could not be fired um, and had no limitations on how long he could be in office. Um, just as an aside, the only way they could be removed is for would be for just cause, so finding just cause to remove the chief of police. Um, but up until 1992, the chief of police wrote his own annual report. And so, of course, there would never be any reason in that report to give to to fire the police chief. Parker was a vehement anti-communist. Uh, he called civil rights activists. He related them to criminality. And he sees the LAPD as an all-powerful force that goes out to fight crime and find it before it occurs, kind of proactive police force. And the key point here, without going too far into Parker, is that under his, his kind of leadership in the LAPD, they create the conditions under which an outpouring of anti-police protest occurs. African-American and Latinx residents and activists recognized the threat that police power operated as an occupying force in their neighborhoods under Parker. Um, and their statistics, I'm not going to bore you with all those numbers, of the way, just as an example, you know, like in 1964, 121 complaints of excessive force, only 21 were sustained and no officer was found guilty or dismissed. And so the police force is acting with impunity and as unaccountable that creates the conditions, I argue, for the Watts uprising in 1965. And this moment of uprising in 1965 in response to the arrest 
of an African-American man, Marquette Fry, on August 11th, 1965, leads into six days of anti-police protest. Um, the years of police abuse and discrimination at the hands of the police um, led to this moment. Um, the police come out in force, and so here's a kind of moment of that uprising. The police response to what the Watts uprising creates, which is a crisis of legitimacy for the department, um, to, set, to kind of raise that problem, is they come out in force, they call out the National Guard, they turn to mass arrests as the t main tactic, which you can see here. During those six days of uprising, they arrest over 4,000 people, um, many of whom never had a criminal record before that, despite what the police said. Um, so it leads to a kind of growing criminal crimin criminalization of young men of color who are participating in this protest. Um, here's just another image. Um, it leads to massive destruction and a whole range of things. But the response to this moment of this crisis for the police, as you have a whole city in many ways, in terms of the African-American community, responding to police practices, is one of a crisis of legitimacy. That they respond by saying that this was not a problem of the police. That it was one of lawless rioters, quote unquote. Um, the McCone Commission, which is set up by the governor at the time to investigate the uprising, comes down on the side of Chief Parker and the LAPD, saying that, quote, Parker was ca a capable chief who directs an efficient police force that serves well the entire community. And so the response to this crisis leads to a kind of bolstering of the LAPD's position in the city. Um, the reforms that they promote coming out of this are largely surface-level reforms, including things like human relations training or diversifying the officer corps to hire more black or Latino police officers, appointing people to, to look into police complaints. In, in many ways, what ends up happening is the LAPD capitalizes on the moment of crisis to demand greater authority and power in the city. Um, this is Chief Redden. He comes into power in 1966 at the death of William Parker. And his response, he's supposedly to promote community relations in the city, but his response is one to, to the Watts uprising and in the 1960s is to, to use this crisis to expand the authority of the LAPD. He tells the Kerner Commission in 1967 and 68 when they're investigating urban uprisings around the country, and I'll quote from him here because it's just kind of can't miss. Quote, the administration is in trouble, meaning the presidential one, and that crime is one of the places where they are in trouble. And I think they want to do something about it. And if we, meaning the police, don't take advantage of what exists in the United States in 1967, we are crazy because we are never going to have it so good again. He goes on at one point to say, 1968 would be, quote, the year of the cop. Everything you want, you get. And I say, I want more, and I should be getting it, end quote. And so they use this moment, both of the Watts uprising, but what's going on in the country at large, to then expand their military infrastructure. And they use that to buy anti-riot gear. They buy gas masks, tear gas launchers, um, armored personnel carriers. Um, they develop the special weapons and tactics teams, or SWAT in Los Angeles. Many of them were military veterans, and they also trained at a nearby army base. And so there's this connection to, to militarization as well. 
they also start to use helicopters in new ways in policing um, to respond to say they are going to use a kind of aerial pursuit to help uh, both put down to, to control crime, but also in anti-riot responses, as well as a whole range of computers and other technology. Um, at one point, they say, we want to bring the space age home to the police and bring technology de um, from defense industries in Southern California. And so this militarization, though, at the same time, and the response of the police, anti-police abuse activists don't go away quietly at this moment. They come out of the Watts uprising mobilized to challenge the police as well. African Americans challenge the LAPD's efforts to reassert police power after Watts. In the wake of the killing of Leonard Deadweiler in 19, the spring of 1966, who was an African American man who was driving his wife to the hospital where she was going to give birth to their child, was pulled over on his way to the hospital. And when the car, quote unquote, lurched forward, according to the officer, the officer fired, killing Deadweiler. Um, and this leads to the organization of a group called the Temporary Alliance for Local Organizations, TALA, which also then forms, they develop out of that as well, the Community Alert Patrol. Um, and that Community Alert Patrol, which you can see here, um, organizes to follow the police, to hold them accountable, and to observe police arrests in the black and Latino communities. And this sort of organizing would serve as the basis for Black Panther organizing, both in LA and in Oakland, to follow the police and to hold them accountable. Um, and so it's this sort of organizing, and this hope to end racist police practices that's also coming out of Watts. Um, and it's happening in the Chicano communities as well. Um, that's a kind of different story I can talk about later. Um, and so African-American and Mexican-Americans challenge the growth in police power in efforts to, to restore, quote unquote, law and order. Um, and within the context of urban rebellions across the country and the burgeoning black freedom struggle, activists in Los Angeles made demands on the police to better protect and serve their communities. And these protests and challenges to the LAPD's authority do not go unnoticed because the LAPD responds to anti-police protests by criminalizing activists and claiming they represented a threat to law and order. In other words, the LAPD used that um, anti-police protest to create another crisis to reassert their police power. And nowhere else would this be more evident than in the police response to the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. Um, most notably, um, in LA, the Panthers, along with a number of other African-American organizations, had been challenging the police through the mid to late 1960s. They hold protests, they're observing the police, they confront the police head on. And through this activism, the Panthers and other groups represent a real threat to the LAPD. Such resistance leads to further repression. The most well-known and publicized example, of course, is in, on December 9th, 1969, when the LAPD surround the Panther headquarters at 41st and Central Avenue um, with 300 officers, um, and what turns into a four-hour siege by the LAPD on the Panther headquarters um, leads to three, um, excuse me, six wounded, three officers wounded, 13 Panthers arrested, and nearly 5,000 rounds of ammunition fired towards the building in exchange with the Panthers. Um, you can see it here. Uh, they use assault rifles, they use a SWAT team. Uh, at one point they wanted a grenade launcher to, to use in this assault. But the attack led to 
thousands of people protesting in front of LAPD headquarters in the city hall. African-American and Mexican-American residents viewed the LAPD's aggressive tactics and heavy policing as the work of an occupying force. While there were some efforts to implement community-oriented policing coming out of this, as the police see this as a kind of real problem for their image in terms of the attack on the Panthers nationwide, they continue to carve out room to operate. Not to mention what comes out of this is working to undermine the Panthers through repression and surveillance, which is part of a kind of different story. But they double down, in other words, the LAPD doubles down on repression coming out of this. Police abuse, verbal harassment, frisk rousts, officer-involved shootings continue into the 1970s. The LAPD continues to criminalize anti-police abuse activists, calling it oftentimes a communist threat or subversive. The department, in short, manufactures these crises in the form of anti-police protest to reassert its authority. Um, and this is happening under, this is Chief Ed Davis here, um, who comes into power um, in the late 1960s. This is Daryl Gates, who comes in as chief in, in, the late in 1978. Um, this is Mayor Tom Bradley. So this is the context within which this happens. Um, and under Ed Davis and Daryl Gates and the kind of broader Bradley administration, the LAPD largely continues to operate as a thin blue line protecting quote-unquote law-abiding residents from the forces of crime and disorder. They, create, they further um, establish an us-versus-them attitude um, towards the people that they view as criminal, which oftentimes were people in the city's communities of color. Um, but at the same time, in response to really growing um, police violence in the city in the early 1970s, just as an example, between 1974 and 1977, the number of civilians shot and killed by the LAPD ranged from anywhere from 26 to 33 every year. Uh, of 500, over 500 suspects shot by the police in the, between 1974 and 1979, 55% were black in a city that was not more than 19% African-American. Um, and so in response to growing anti-police -poli violence, activists also start to engage um, in further protest. As the number of individuals abused, harassed, and killed by the LAPD mounted, residents came together and they formed defense and justice committees in the early 1970s in response to, especially in particular, one in particular, uh, the killing of a 17-year-old high school student named Barry Evans, who was an African-American youth who had been writing about anti-police movements in the city, and he's killed in front of his apartment by the cops. Um, and these defense and justice committees come together in the spring of 76 to form jo a, a coalition to fight police abuse. And this is what turns into the Coalition Against Police Abuse, or CAPA. And CAPA, as the organization's called, hoped to address what they called the isolated and ineffectual efforts of black and Latinx residents to respond to what the organizers viewed as a systematic program of what they called police crimes and power abuses that they said, quote, followed a well-established pattern in poorer minority communities. And they framed the police as an occupying force that did not protect and serve the people, but acted as armed enforcers of racism, sexism, and other forms of oppression. And that they were in their communities for the purpose of intimidation, confinement, and control. So CAPA is responding to the police um, they base on a model of coalition building that's multiracial. They work across racial and ethnic lines. And they would accept anyone who agreed to the principle of community control of the police. 
And so their demands went beyond just kind of these piecemeal reforms of hiring a few more black or Latino officers. They framed the police abuse as a problem that transcended racial and ethnic lines, and they engaged in a range of organizing activities, including you know, protests, including political education groups, nonviolent protests, political reform, legal redress, along with a number of others. Um, one of the most basic things they did was collect complaints from residents who felt they were abused by the police because residents and communities of color felt that their complaint, if it was taken to the police department, would not be heard. And so by early 1980s, CAPA is collecting over 1,500 complaints a year by itself to, as, to use as, and working with the ACLU to try to bring attention to the problem of police accountability. The other thing that comes out of those cases of bringing in police complaints is legal redress. And this is Michael Zinzin, and he was one of the chair chairmen of the organization. Um, and he, in 1985, was beaten by a pa Pasadena Police Department officer while he was just trying to observe the arrest of one of his neighbors. And he lost sight in one of his eyes permanently. And out of that case came a lawsuit that led to over a million dollar settlement with the LAPD. And so legal settlements become another strategy that CAPA uses to, to try to alter the police um, practices in the city. And so these are a number of ways that CAPA is demanding change. They also pressure public officials to try to change the use of force guidelines of the police. And they're successful at some, at some level. The relationship between police and residents of color continue along a largely antagonistic path through the late 1970s, and events would mobilize a broad movement calling for systemic police reform by more than just Kappa activists. And in particular, the kind of one of the most iconic moments is in early 1979 on January 3rd, when a black woman by the name of Eula Mae Love, a 39-year-old widow raising three daughters in South Central Los Angeles, attempted to pay an overdue gas bill. She resisted the effort of a Southern California Edison Company representative who came to her house to turn off the gas. She then goes to a market to get a money order for $29 to pay off the, the balance she needed to keep the gas on. When the Southern California representative calls the police, they send two officers to Love's house, one black and one white. When those officers arrive, they find Eula May Love in her yard um, and she had a kitchen knife in her hand, supposedly. The officers approach her with guns drawn. One of them tries to knock the knife out of her hand, knocks her down. And when they reportedly, supposedly, she reaches for the knife, both officers open fire, empty their guns, and kill her on the scene. This was also called, just for kind of context, by the LAPD, a business dispute. So the LAPD is there enforcing sort of capital in that sense. Um, there's widespread outcry at this moment of, of police violence. However, the police department and the criminal justice system's response in the city revealed a further unwillingness to hold the police accountable. The district attorney refused to prosecute the officers. Uh, the LAPD's shooting review board found that they acted within the department's use of deadly force guidelines. Chief Daryl Gates called it a, quote, legitimate self-defense. But this incident becomes a lightning rod for the expression of deeply felt hostility aimed at the police and fueled Kappa's anti-police abuse activism. The love killing was critical to, to connecting po the police's use of excessive force with residents' daily experience of harassment and discrimination. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.